Welcome to Writer's Radio, where writers speak their art. I'm Carol Harmon. Today, I'm happy to introduce you to Vancouver author, librarian, photo researcher, and photographer Kate Bird in conversation with Ingrid Rose and reading from her collection of essays, A Memoir in Pieces. Kate Bird. You've had a professional relationship with writing for many years as librarian, author, and researcher. Before we explore how that came about, I'd like us to hear an excerpt from your essay about face. We don't get to see your face on radio, so it seems a telling way to be introduced to you, and in fact is probably more telling than a visual image. Game face. If it's not my default face that I'm criticized for, it's that my face can express too much emotion. My husband has remarked that at times my face looks scary. Other times he's accused me of being angry when I'm not. Someone I was traveling with once called me ferocious. It took me aback and I spent the next several hours examining how it was that I came across that way. What is this anger that others see in an unpredictable mask of my face? Am I so out of touch with my inner emotional world? Do I have a mood ring of a face clouding over with dark storm clouds of anger and sadness? You look like you'd like to rip someone's head off, someone said at work. I wasn't particularly annoyed right then, or maybe a little. Of course, there is anger in me, plenty of it perhaps even more than I realize, a sediment of pain that swirls up when disturbed. A friend once commented that at times she felt like a skunk. I took it to mean that she raised a stink with an unpopular opinion or bad vibe that people wanted to steer clear of. When I express an unacceptable level of intensity, a bad or good feeling that others find too extreme, that makes them uncomfortable, I, too, feel like a skunk. Skunks move slowly and are easy prey for predators. Solitary and easygoing, they're reluctant warriors, confrontational only when threatened. They issue repeated warnings before spraying a noxious odor, their only security, their lone weapon, used only as a last resort. I've worked hard, learned to control my temper and soften my emotional responses for the sake of my loved ones and to make my life easier. The anger that flares up sometimes, unexpectedly, 
must be managed, must be forced down like an overstuffed suitcase, sat on till it squeezed down tight, clasps snapped shut, the thing bulging at the seams but contained. No one deserves to be on the other end of my anger because it has nothing to do with them. Perhaps I'm a skunk even if I don't spray anymore, that I'm somehow marked by an invisible white stripe down my back. But there's a part of me that occasionally wants to rebel against the pressure to smile when I don't feel like it, that rails against having to tone down my emotions for public consumption. In Tim Burton's film, Alice in Wonderland, the Mad Hatter tells Alice, you're not the same as you were before. You used to be much, muchier. You've lost your muchness. I, too, have lost my muchness, and there are times when I want it back, when I long to bust out of the social constraints on my behavior and become the version of me that I don't allow myself to be, to be exactly as angry and ferocious as I sometimes feel. What would happen if I let out all the anger? What harm would it do to unleash it? I fear that it would hurt me more than it would anyone. The guilt of it, like lava, incinerating me to the core. Face down. A few months ago, a car made a sharp left turn at high speed, wheels squealing into a parking lot and almost ran over my friend and I. The driver parked, and when the four young guys in the car jumped out, three of them were laughing. My friend was quiet, in shock, but I reacted with anger. You're laughing, I yelled. You could have killed us. The driver looked me in the eyes, apologized. I'm not laughing, he said. His obvious contrition conjured a kind of magic potion, and in an instant my fiery anger calmed, disappeared in a puff of smoke. Later, my friend told me that she was nervous when I confronted them, that she'd never seen me like that. I get angry when I'm frightened, I said. Like a skunk, mild-mannered until threatened. manage to write or did you manage to do your own personal writing and have your full-time job yeah I I just always made time for it and you know during when my son was young it was more difficult but I, I it always just kept me going to have these uh, writing projects on the go and taking classes and courses and it was just always there as a bit part of my life. Did you have an established practice? Like, you know, people talk about morning pages or did you have a rhythm to it? I did. I had a lot of different smaller stories, which I've now starting to work on, even some from ages ago. But the, the big one was this memoir. It was a story about my father and me. That I, I worked on it on and off for 18 years or something, really a long time. It changed and morphed, but it was always something that was in the back of my mind that I was trying to finish or trying to resolve. 
I would work on that, work on other things. I did some newspaper pieces and I, I edited another type of newsletter and did different kinds of writing and a lot of professional writing over the years as well. You've since retired from your librarian job and your relationship to the memoir has changed. It certainly has. Over the years, I took different classes and I wanted to work on shorter pieces and I'm interested in essays and short stories and now flash pieces. I kept thinking I really want to do this, these new pieces that I had in my head or finish ones that I um, had started, but I wouldn't let myself work on that because I felt that I had to finish this memoir. About a year ago, I had sent the memoir out. I thought it was almost finished, and I sent it out to someone to have a look at, and they suggested a number of changes. And I started thinking about all those changes, which were perfectly, you know, made sense to me, but, and also thinking about the whole publication process of making all those changes, and then working on the editorial process if I was to publish it, and then the years that that would take. Last year, unfortunately, I lost a couple of people very close to me, and it got me thinking about, you know, my age and where I was in life, and I thought, I just can't spend two more years or whatever it might be. I'm just going to have to just leave that as it is and start working on these other pieces that are calling out to me. The memoir had become a dead horse that I was flogging. I just decided one day when I was out walking and I thought, oh, I could just leave it. And then I thought, oh, I can't do that. And then over course of a few days or a week, I just decided, you know what? That's what I really want to do. And that's what I'm going to do. And you had said an interesting thing. You said that you've been cannibalizing it since. Right. So I thought I'll just put it to the side and get on to these other things that are more interesting and exciting. And But in the course of doing that, you know, there are parts of the memoir that I've always really liked that were still really alive to me. So I started to basically cannibalize bits out of the memoir and turn them into essays, different forms. I did a class last summer called Writing from Photographs, which of course combines my interest in photography and writing. And so I took a particular photograph that my father had taken of my mother and uh, wrote an essay, including a lot of things from the memoir. And once I did that, I realized, oh, okay, I can just rework some of this material I do like and just leave out the parts that aren't working for me anymore. And so that's what I've been doing over the past year. In a, in a way, I think, in time, hopefully by the end of this year, I'll have a new version of the memoir, which is in pieces, a memoir in pieces, I call it. So it's basically a memoir of essays. What is it about the essay for you that is a, a kind of, it sounds like it's liberating. You know, you were saying the memoir had become this dead horse. Yes. Well, it, it, part of it was also looking for a, a better congruity with where I was and my interests and experience. 
research is a huge skill of mine. That wasn't incorporated enough into my work. Photography, so writing pieces that either are from a photograph or are, you know, include photography in some way. I just felt that I, it was an opportunity to try different forms. For instance, the one story I did about the photograph is called Archival Record, and it's kind of a in the form of an archival record, but it's the story of my parents' early years together. In January 1945, as the Second World War wound down, my father was demobilized from the Royal Canadian Air Force and returned to work at the Northern Electric Company in Montreal. He was 20 years old. He saved enough money to buy a second-hand German-made 35mm rangefinder camera, a camera similar to a Leica, but not a Leica, to document his outdoor adventures. When my father died, I inherited the late 1940s black-and-white negatives and photographs he shot with his first camera. When I sorted through the collection, I found few images of his family, and fewer still taken in the city. Film and developing must have been costly, and my father reserved his film for what mattered most to him at the time. Fishing, hunting, skiing, snowshoeing, being in the woods and on the river, anywhere outdoors. There are hundreds of photographs of unknown locations in the countryside and images of my father and his friends in all seasons of the year and in every kind of weather, standing next to a strung-up deer, holding a clutch of rabbits, a string of fish. At first I disregarded the unidentified landscapes as meaningless to me and almost discarded them, it was only later that I came to realize how precious they must have been to my father. How in spite of moving house many times in the years after the divorce, despite losing and pawning everything he owned in the darkest days of a decade-long bender, when he had struggled mightily to hold on to anyone and anything, he had somehow managed to preserve this collection of early photographs. Later I understood that to my father, these images may have represented the best of himself and who he had most wanted to be, that they were the tangible evidence of his life as an outdoorsman. The young man who had spent every spare moment learning to navigate the currents, reefs and shoals of the St. Lawrence River, back when the marshes and woods where he hunted were as familiar as the neighborhood where he lived before marriage and fatherhood and work and life's expectations and disappointments tamed his wild spirit. These photographs of a glade in the woods, of roiling white-capped rapids on a river, of a placid lake at dawn, became for me the key to understanding the man my father used to be. When I was a teenager, my father gave me his first camera, the 35mm German-made camera that wasn't a Leica, and it became my first camera, too. I learned to adjust the f-stop and aperture on the all-manual camera without a light meter because I didn't know then that I needed one. 
The camera had a brown leather case with a long strap, and I carried it with me everywhere. I recall the feel of the strap around my neck, the weight of it. Through the 1970s and early 1980s, I used it to shoot thousands of photographs, but there are few images of the outdoors. When I was 23, I assembled a portfolio for an application to study photography at the Vancouver School of Art. I learned to develop black and white film in the basement where I lived, and in these early attempts, the negatives are covered with dust spots. In a rented darkroom, I made poor prints of the poor negatives for my portfolio, which included portraits of my friends, my boyfriend, and a self-portrait. One self-portrait from this period I shot in the bathroom mirror at my apartment. In the foreground, I gazed downward and out of frame, my face impassive. The reflections are multifaceted. My face in the medicine cabinet mirror, a reflection of the back of my head. But it's my father's German 35mm camera that wasn't a Leica, that I don't know the brand name of, that I've searched to identify unsuccessfully on vintage camera websites and on eBay that's still so remarkably familiar to me. That and the distinctive way that my hands hold the camera, the unusual grip I still use 40 years later. I don't recall what became of the camera. In the early 1980s, my father wrote and asked me to return a camera that he'd given me, but I don't believe that it was a German 35mm. I think it was his two and a quarter inch Roloflex-like camera that wasn't a Roloflex, which I remember sending back in the mail. If I did return the 35mm camera to my father at that time, During a period when he was testing the depths of rock bottom, he would have pawned it. Or I may have traded the camera in to buy my first Nikon. There's something about essays that just give us, I feel also, more room to explore from different angles, even different structure. Is that what you've been finding? Uh, Yes. Like, for example, in About Face, my essay, I have these different headings like face facts, facial recognition, game face, put on a brave face. And they're little vignettes of different stories and also research. There's a book by Ruth Ozeki called The Face, A Time Code. And in it, she stares at her face in the mirror for three hours solid. The book is what she's thinking about. It's everything from the scars on that she might see, the lines, her age, her ethnicity, her childhood memories. I, I talk about that. There are things about uh, in the essay about duality, about Parvati and Durga and how we have a happy face and a sad face and research on what's called resting bitch face, which is when your face is relaxed and you can look unhappy or, or sad. You don't mean to. It's just how your face goes and how people like 
especially women are criticized. You know, Queen Elizabeth kind of has it as does Hillary Clinton, you know, criticized for uh, this stern look when that's not how you feel inside. All these different observations about face, I was able to bring together talking about my face and about just women and their faces from all these different angles. You have been listening to Kate Bird in conversation with Ingrid Rose and reading from her essays About Face and Archival Record AN1940s. Archival Record AN1940s was shortlisted for the Malahat Review's 2021 Constance Rook Creative Nonfiction Prize. Both of these essays are included in her work in progress, A Memoir in Pieces. Kate Bird's best-selling Vancouver in the 70s, Photos from a Decade that Changed the City, and her two other photo books of historical photography are available from your favorite bookstore or the publisher, Greystone Books. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Writers Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Traditional tribal land of the Shishel Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. We express our gratitude for their wisdom teachings and land stewardship.